Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. Today, we are talking about a topic that's very near and dear to our hearts. I'm talking, of course, about the F word, feminism. How, how's everyone doing today? So uh, before we go any further, I should introduce our guest. Her name is Cinzia Aruzza, professor of philosophy at the New School. She's also an activist in the DSA and one of the organizers of the International Women's Strike, as well as a co-author of the book Feminism for the 99%, A Manifesto. Hey, Cinzia, how you Hi. doing? Uh, in, in spite of the heat well enough oh my god it's so fucking hot <laughs> yes. outside it's like it's like walking around in someone's mouth that's how i describe oh god. it <laughs> yeah right maybe a dog's mouth i don't know oh no <laughs> it is the dog days of summer mm -hmm. as i talked about mm -hmm. last week yeah at length oh and i should also mention um that we may have another guest joining us um we might be having some technical difficulties with the skype right now but if she can hop on we're also going to have tithi bhattacharya who is another co-author of the book. So we can get feminist as fuck with Tithi and Chinzia. I, oh, one thing I wanted to mention. Uh, Chinzia, are you sad that Aussie Fest was canceled this weekend? I have no idea what it is. Oh, okay. So you didn't like buy a ticket or anything? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Okay, excellent. Um, Aussie Fest is a really good place to go if you're a neoliberal uh, feminist of some sort or like non-feminist to like really just gather ideas and express some sort of like grassroots solidarity with your fellow neoliberals. <laughs> okay. Like last year I went last year and, um, I saw none other than our feminist queen, Hillary Clinton deliver the keynote address. I mean, being a feminist, you'd probably be really into that, right? Ouch. Uh, yeah. It's a pity I missed it. <laughs> you're not with, you're not with her. <laughs> Uh, not really. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so I guess last year I should explain a little further. I went um, and I took acid to try to like better absorb <laughs> all of the ideas that were just flying at me so fast um, from thinkers, luminaries such as Steven Pinker, Tom uh -huh. Perez, and Abuelita Queen Hillary herself. And I think what really happened this year is not necessarily the heat, because it's, it's always pretty fucking hot in the summertime in New York, but my coverage last year was just so good, and my acid thoughts were so valid and correct that they had to cancel it because they could not handle that kind of epic ponage a second time. Or maybe they just like finally took what I said to heart and they were like, you know what? I'm thinking about my life. I'm thinking about my choices. Maybe let's not do this. Yeah, they realized they were sellouts and decided to make it into a rainbow gathering kind of thing where they just have it mm. out in a, a state park in Arkansas or something. Yeah, the lineup this year was supposed to be uh, John Legend was the musical guest. The comedy headline was Trevor Noah. Uh, the ideas headline is Malcolm Gladwell mm, and Dr. Oz. Uh, and the business headline is Mark Cuban and Cindy Eckert. Well, what's the world going to do with that? And then, oh, that? well, you know, Stacey Abrams was the political oh, headline. And John Kasich as well. Oh, man. And uh, so this was, a, is a, this was supposed to be a two-day festival that's canceled because of the heat. Um, but I read that it, they, were, they were going to reserve this, this portion of the Great Lawn, which is a public space, for nine days to set it up and break it down. Wow. And tickets for the two-day fest, guess how much they, they would... How much would you pay to see John Legend and Mark Cuban and John Kasich? I don't know. Nothing? <laughs> how much do you think... Uh, how much do you think somebody would pay? 
for that two-day uh, fest? What, me... What's if you were setting the price? Okay, but I I I I'm the neoliberal, right? Yes, you're a neoliberal. Okay. You're trying to cash in. Okay, then let's say fifty dollars. Fifty dollars <laughs> per day. Okay, now two days. Fifty dollars yeah. each day. A hundred dollars no, no. total. No, no, fifty dollars total. Twenty-five dollars each day. Yes. So four hundred dollars. What? For for both days. Four hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay, I'm not an liberal oh. enough. <laughs> no. Oh my God! Yeah, you gotta you think really, big. You really got to get into the mind of a neoliberal, Chidzia. Yeah, no, it's you got to you got to understand how these people think and in order to defeat them. That's what we're here to, to do them. today. That's what we do at that's the That's exactly Antipata. what we're doing that's here the today. Oh my God! People were so mad that this thing was canceled too. They like bought plane tickets and hotel rooms and shit fire festival 2.0 are they getting the money back i think they're gonna get their money back yeah Meh. <laughs> at, at new york city taxpayer expense somehow oh, i'm sure only it's not actually the fire festival because they're in new york city with access to food and mm -hmm. water and beds and stuff so you know maybe think before you try to appropriate fire festival attendee culture <laughs> <laughs> moving right along uh you guys wrote a book. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about it. We're going to explore today. Much in the same way that the, you know, Aussie Fest was going to explore ideas. Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be the, the Aussie Fest of uh, socialism. Okay. So, but how much is the ticket? <laughs> they, we pay, they pay you. We get, we get a whole world <laughs> to win. That's what we get. Um, so, how did you all... Uh, and. There's a third co-author I should mention, Nancy Fraser. How did you all uh, get together and start working together and decide to write this manifesto? Okay, so, uh, I mean, Nancy and I are uh, colleagues at the new school, so we have known each other for uh, nine years. And with TD, we organize, um, especially with TD, but also with the support of, uh, from Nancy, we organized the first uh, uh, and second women's strike in the United States in 2017, 2018. So we were already pretty much in conversation about uh, feminism, uh, capitalism, uh, politics, and so on. Uh, but of course, the idea of uh, running the manifesto um, came to us from the fact that, um, you know, we are uh, basically in the middle of a new powerful feminist wave, um, except for the United States, unfortunately, but mm. we, will, we can discuss this later. Um, and... Uh, it's a um, feminist wave that is mobilizing millions of women and queer people and people in general around the world, especially in Latin America and uh, Europe, but not only. Um, and uh, uh, it is a uh, you know, feminist movement with the mass dimension that has organized already three international strikes. So the idea, of course, came from the movement in the sense that uh, it, made, it made sense for us to write a feminist manifesto because there is a subjectivity. There, there are, you know, the, the people uh, doing the, the, the work of mobilizing, of uh, creating a conflict or unrest uh, and so on. And uh, uh, somehow the manifesto is meant to also systematize somehow uh, some of the ideas and insights coming already from the movement. So a lot of what we write in the manifesto is actually directly inspired by the programs, analysis and demands of the feminist movement. Love it. So that kind of uh, starts to answer my next question, which is, uh, why call it a manifesto? What makes this a manifesto? And what purpose do you hope that it serves in the world? 
So it is, uh, um, I mean, it is not a programmatic manifesto. In other words, uh, you're not going to find, you know, a, reci a list of recipes <laughs> of, uh, or, uh, of um, I mean, you, you can find some demands or uh, general ideas of how society should be reorganized, but there isn't a clear uh, programmatic uh, uh, strategic uh, proposal uh, because the, um, the goal was rather to... Uh, to provide the, the, the movement and the militants in the movement with an, and, and people in general with the, an analysis. So it's more of an analytical manifesto, which is uh, organized in 11 theses. Uh, so each thesis is devoted to a, single, a, a specific issue. Um, so we go from uh, you know, liberal feminism to uh, social reproduction, racism, war and imperialism, uh, um, the crisis of, uh, uh, of politics uh, and so on. Um, so it is a manifesto in the sense that it, it, it articulates in 11 theses, accessible theses, uh, a whole uh, um, analysis of the relation between capitalism and uh, gender oppression, gender and sexual oppression, and it articulates uh, um, a political proposal uh, for an alternative uh, uh, feminism, you know, in, uh, in contrast with uh, liberal feminism. Yeah, so a, a major part of it was uh, sort of explaining what it what it wasn't, um, uh, expressing itself in contrast to these other kinds of feminisms that are sort of, uh, especially in the United States, I'm not sure about elsewhere, but uh, have, have become central to the concept of what feminism is. Um, and specifically, uh, you characterize two of those tendency as, tendencies as carceral feminism and uh, femocrats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so who are these characters and, and how is uh, your proposal different? Okay, so carceral feminism, uh, what we mean uh, by this is basically the kind of, uh, you know, liberal feminist that thinks that the solution to gender violence is an increase in repression, in state repression. Uh, this goes from, you know, um, you know, the certainty of the, of the punishment uh, discourse, uh, um, you know, the, the, the demand for... Uh, um, heavier uh, uh, punishment for sexual assault and so on to uh, the various campaigns against uh, trafficking, for example. Um, and uh, uh, we uh, want to distinguish feminist 49% from carceral, from, from this kind of feminism, because we think that there is a fundamental problem with carceral feminism, which is that, first of all, it thinks that the state and the police and the repressive apparatus in general are somehow... Uh, friends of women <laughs> uh, or that can be used uh, uh, as, you know, to, d to defend women's uh, rights or, uh, or uh, um, conditions of life and so on, while we know that actually they are, uh, you know, if we think about gender violence in war zones or against migrant women or against racialized women, or also the way in which rape cases are handled in, uh, in, uh, in course, uh, clearly the repressive uh, state apparatus is part of the problem, it's certainly not a friend. Right. And secondly, uh, there is the problem that uh, this kind of uh, carceral feminism doesn't take into account the fact that uh, uh, gender violence has been instrumentalized uh, historically for uh, um, the stigmatization of racialized people. So in other words, the myth of the black rapist or the mm -hmm. uh, rapist immigrant and so on. So we cannot be naive in calling for, uh, uh, for a state repressive intervention. Um, and femocrats, by femocrats, we, uh, what we mean is the liberal feminist, uh, let's, let's say liberal institutional feminist. So, but not it, a female Democrat. That's what no, I no, thought. No, 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 no. It's a, a female I mean, bureaucrat. A feminist there certainly bureaucrat. is uh -huh. some overlap there. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's more the NGO feminist, the micro credit, the uh, 
yeah, you know, yeah. What's wrong with that kind of feminism? State agencies mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, well, um, if we look at the, so you know, th- think about microcredit. <laughs> microcredit was presented as uh, uh, the solution, you know, one way, one major road for the solution for solving the problem of uh, women's emancipation in the south of the world and mm-hmm. the end of gender violence in the south of the world. Um, as a matter of fact, what uh, microcredit uh, ended up doing was to actually, cre- you know. Uh, make the situation of these women uh, even worse because on top, first of all, uh, microgredit w- didn't have any uh, possibility of actually freeing women from patriarchal conditions in the countries where they were living. Uh, very often the credit is actually, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, the woman applies to the credit, but the male relatives uh, mm. manage the money <laughs> and decide where the money goes. Uh, and on top of this, uh, uh, microcredit has created a mass of, uh, of uh, people and women in particular who are now heavily indebted. Uh, so, so the concept is that, uh, you know, women would get these small loans that would move them into entrepreneurship. Yes. And yeah. then because they were making money as entrepreneurs, they would not be as dependent on men. Exactly. And the problem is that uh, since it is especially very poor women who apply for who apply for microcredit, is that the money was actually used not to start a, you know a company, but actually to feed the family, you know, mm-hmm. to satisfy basic needs, uh, but without generating a, a revenue, mm-hmm. uh, a further income, which means that then they ended up, you know, entire families ended up in, in deep in debt. And on top of this, of course, you know, like. Uh, the, 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 as I said, you know, the credit was very, very often managed by the male uh, relatives of the woman in question. So it didn't uh, uh, do anything to actually challenge patriarchal relations within the family. Mm. And you also wrote about how it makes these women more dependent on the first world creditors, right? Yes. That's yeah, of course, because now they are heavily in debt. So they have to repay the debt. In in uh, in addition to so you know they're they're now integrating the financial global financial market, but precisely as debitors. So, so the conception of materialist feminism is essentially the same that women do need to have this uh, material independence uh, from not just from men but from uh, from you know global finance or yes. you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the way that they're doing it is entirely cynical, just looking to sell more. Yeah. financial products essentially yes but yes it's basically selling uh, fun, you know finding a new market uh, mass market for financial pro- uh, products uh, without uh, changing any of the socioeconomic structures mm-hmm. that th- organize you know the life in these countries i think it's really important to lay that out because it doesn't seem necessarily like a bad thing on its face to someone who doesn't know that much about it right like a lot of left liberals listening might be like oh what's wrong with microloans now you know Yes. You heard it here first, folks. So um, I also like how you sort of posited as two sides of the same coin, the sort of neoliberal fem- feminists on the one hand and these sort of vulgar Marxist class reductionists mm-hmm. on the other, which are, you know, usually social Democrats of some description or another. Um, like what's what's wrong with that idea, that sort of class reductionist idea that like, you know, race gender oppression these all stem from capitalism so the only way to fight them is to fight capitalism directly on the traditional terrain of the workplace um and also this sort of strategic idea that um this idea of mass action that i've heard thrown around a lot in the dsa and what that generally means when these people say it is any demand that doesn't immediately benefit 
every single person in the working class, these sort of quote unquote class wide demands Mm -hmm. does not qualify as mass action and as such should be deprioritized because it's not as it's allegedly not as immediately appealing or beneficial to the greatest number of working class people. Um, What what pieces of the puzzle are those people missing? Uh, All of them. So. (laughs) Okay, first of all, uh, um, let me start from the second uh, question, the, the issue of uh, class-wide demands. Um, first of all, there is, I mean, I, I would be curious to know what the historical evidence for this position is, in the sense that if we look at the history of, uh, you know, uh, social struggles, uh, movements, and so on, uh, um, of course, there are moments in which, you know, it is uh, class-wide demands, or even, you know, even more than class-wide, like, you know, peace and land in Russia. Okay, yes. <laughs> in a specific moment, then you have this kind of uh, very wide demands that uh, manage to, um, uh, to, to express somehow the, the social uh, unrest um, crossing the whole of society. But a lot of social struggles and movements actually started from uh, partial demands, uh, w- which were not directly... Uh, applicable to the whole class. Uh, so, you know, think about the civil rights movement in the United States. This was one of the great, you know, the most massive m- movements in the United States. Of course, these were not class-wide demands. These were specific demands for a sector of the class and, uh, and of the population. Um, so I think that the, one of the problems is that, that there is this um, somehow, I don't know how to call it, but, you know, arithmetical view of politics. So, in other words, you can, uh, you know, um, there is a direct correspondence between uh, how broad the demand is and how broad the mass movement is going to be. Uh, but things co- work in a, a much more complicated way, and uh, we can actually learn a lot from history if we you know, uh, pay a bit more attention to you know, concrete historical processes oh. and how they unfolded. But, but what about in 2016 when class-wide demands helped elect Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. who then took office and fixed all of the problems? <laughs> Okay, uh, it, was, it was not elected precisely. Oh, but, wait, yeah, I'm sorry, that's wait. a different timeline, never yeah. mind. Well, it's going to happen this time, And it's, sure. uh, <laughs> And some, you know, like... Um, but, I mean, um, I want to also clarify, I'm not against class-wide demands, <laughs> but I'm against this very easy, you know, arithmetical view of politics in which you have, you know, these neat correspondences, you know, how wide the man is, how wide mm-hmm. the movement is going to be, and so on and so on. While uh, very often what happens is that uh, a specific struggle uh, takes uh, somehow an exemplary, you know, plays an exemplary role. So in other words, it spareheads the mobilization of other sectors. So uh, from this viewpoint, you know, think about, you know, in a sense, uh, Standing Rock could have become this kind of, mm. you know, um, struggle that was, you know, partially because it was in you know, a specific community, a specific place and so on. Uh, so this would not amount to a class-wide demand if we take the national context uh, as a whole in con- in, into consideration. However, I think that there was the possibility, the potentiality for that struggle to become somehow the, to sp- you know, spearheading uh, a growth of mobilizations in uh, in uh, in general. So very often uh, uh, the, the dynamic of struggle uh, takes this kind of path. So you have some exemplary um, struggle. That then uh, shows that you know you can win, for example, uh, that you can mobilize, that you know solidarity is a good thing, and so on and so on, and this inspires other people to to fight back. It seems like in in the U.S. Um, there's this conception of mobilization uh, that we saw with the Women's March, with Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter, Occupy. There isn't 
a conception of the next steps. Following what you said, I, I think these movements just naturally need to converge into something larger than than just the Women's March or just mm -hmm. Standing Rock or just Black Lives Matter. Uh, and I think the ideas of the people who go to these things, they understand them intersectionally. And yet we, we, we neither see them merging in a concrete way, nor do we see them returning mm -hmm. when they need to. So w why do you think that is? What do you think is lacking uh, in the yeah. U.S. or in these movements in general? Okay, so there are... Uh Let's say that the, the examples you made are, have, have very different dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, there isn't uh, an easy answer for all of these cases. But I'm going to say something about the Women's March. Uh, but there is also a general problem uh, uh, that applies, I think, to all cases, which is that uh, somehow, and this is starting changing, I think, in the United States, somehow, uh, because of the, you know, the level of repression and, uh, and the destruction of the, of the, of the working-class movement um, from the 30s onward, I think what was uh, lost in the United States uh, in the left cultural politics was, uh, you know, like um, somehow a memory <laughs> of how to build organization, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the capacity to, you know, uh, to have some uh, element of uh, continu historical continuity in the sense of, uh, um, you know, knowing how things have been done in the past, knowing, in, reflecting about how you can uh, uh, apply them, but also change them and so on and so on. So I think... Um, uh, one general problem is that, you know, the lack of an organizational culture uh, within, uh, you know, at, at the mass level within, mm -hmm. uh, within the left. Uh, then, of course, there are very specific dynamics. You know, in the case of Occupy, the problem was also the kind of uh, uh, specific political uh, uh, proposal um, that was, you know, that had the majority of the movement behind. Uh, which, in my view, had some limitations uh, from this viewpoint. In the case of the Women's March, um, again, uh, the, the problem was uh, not just that you know, people show up at uh, demonstrations and then they disappear. The problem is also that the Women's March shows, the leaders of the Women's March chose a very specific form or, of organizing, which was the NGO style, uh, which was not conducive to um, facilitate the par participation of people from below. Mm -hmm. um, so this already you know, created a, a red, rather you know, hierarchical um, you know, in a sense, you know, the various uh, uh, nodes of the Women's March had a lot of autonomy, but at the same time, at the level of deciding uh, the political orientation of the Women's March as a whole, in, at the level of visibility and so on, it was uh, entirely hierarchical and vertical. So in other words, there was uh, this group of uh, leaders who had everything mm. in their hands. And then the second problem is that they decided to uh, do electoral poll, you know, like the last year, uh, when was this last year mm -hmm. for the midterm elections uh, they decided to get heavily involved in the electoral campaigns for uh, democratic progressive women um, and again uh, this was you know marked a shift from the idea of that resistance is mass mobilization first right. to the idea that resistance is you know uh, in the polls so, so the slogan was power to the polls so, so you would be more interested in it um, staying uh, closer to the idea of, uh, or like moving towards the idea of like a women's general strike, like what they have in Poland and Argentina? Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but uh, in Argentina, so uh, on the one hand, you have, you know, the, the radical idea of, you know, mass mobilization. And then the other hand, uh, on the other, you also need to find the organizational forms that are adequate to this. So the, the Argentinian feminist movement has... Uh, uh, you know, with all, the, all its limitations, but as an organizational form which allows participation from below. So, for example, uh, you know, large public assemblies where decisions are made. Uh, and the same applies to the movement in Chile or uh, in, uh, in Italy or in Spain and so on. Uh, 
so the problem again was on the one hand the the, the role they gave to electoral politics as the solution. Basically, the idea was, you know, the, the real resistance to, to Trump now needs to move from the streets to the polls. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is going yeah. to save us. Uh. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and, and also the organizational form that was adequate for an electoral, com- you know, right. electoral campaign or electoral machine kind of structure, yeah. but clearly not for a mass movement. So if, yeah. if there was this bottom-up movement, you think it would tend more towards something like a strike than towards electoral campaigns? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I agree with you, um, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that stuff like the Women's March has run out of steam just right now when we need it so badly right we have kids in concentration camps our reproductive rights are under total attack and like these progressive democrats they're not going to cut it like the supreme court is fucked for years it's just fucked and there's nothing within the framework of the system that we can do about that besides i guess um packing the court or adding term limits or something which is something that a president bernie sanders (laughs) might be open to doing (laughs) I don't know what his latest take is on that. But like, I think people are going to be looking for answers right now, like especially liberals who know that shit is really fucked up, but they don't know what to do about it. And they've seen their interventions starting to fail and people are really scared. And I think this is a good opening maybe for leftists to come in Mm -hmm. and say, you've got power. You've got more power than you think you do. Um, but we might have to break some of the rules of the system and people need to get more comfortable with that. So like when people were talking about, you know, the importance of the Supreme Court, the importance of voting, I'm like, okay, that's not unimportant. But what do we do now? Now that now that it's this fucked up, do we just like roll over and say, okay, I guess abortion's legal now. We live in a handmaid's tale world. Or do we look at other options? And the strike is so it's such a powerful tool and it's something that's been dormant for so long but i see it coming back in like the wave of teacher strikes mm-hmm. which are also being spearheaded by mostly women and like people at okay my day job the majority report i try not to talk about it too much on the show but it kind of you know takes over my brain sometimes like when i brought up the idea of a mass strike for reproductive justice people looked at me like i had three heads like <laughs> oh you're so crazy jamie I'm like they did it in poland i mean it didn't necessarily get everything that they wanted to out of it but like now uh there's a resolution being floated at the dsa national convention this Mm -hmm. year that i'm really excited about that is precisely laying out a plan for what it would look like for us to organize for a mass strike for reproductive justice like we have the power to shut things down not only in the workplace but outside of the workplace as well because we're going to get to this in a second but social reproductive labor is also an important foundation of the economy. So, like, yeah. I feel like we're on the same page about that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, and of course, I mean, this doesn't mean that organizing a mass strike is something easy to do. <laughs> this is extremely, yeah. and especially in the United States, it's something extremely difficult because of, uh, of the labor laws, because of the very low level of unionization. So it's bas- a tiny minority of the, working, uh, of the workforce that is unionized here. Really tiny, tiny minority. So uh, clearly when we speak about, because I also signed the, the the um, the proposal for a mass strike. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, of course you know like uh, I mean uh, we need to be aware about the difficulty of uh, doing this. But at the same time, if we do not start reasoning at that, at this level, we we really will we will have no uh, 
um, uh, hope or stopping this kind of, you know, move uh, uh, to the right. Yeah. And so it's we got to do we got to try everything that we can right now. And that seems like something that we should not ever leave off the table. Yeah. So, OK, I want to move into theory a little bit before we return to uh, praxis and what people can do in real life practically with this wonderful document that you guys have produced. Um, so let's start, let's start with something very basic because I've sometimes struggled to come up with a definition of the working class that mm. doesn't center waged workers or people who work for a wage. I feel like everything I come up with is very clunky and you will probably do a better job because you're a professor. <laughs> I mean, it's not easy to define what the working class is because if we, already if we take the socialist or Marxist tradition, there are very, uh, you know, there are competing definitions. Um, so there is, for example, uh, even in Marx himself, there is uh, sometimes the tendency to define the working class as the industrial working class, uh, industrial workforce. But and then, you know, you have other texts in which class uh, appears to be a political concept. So it's not a sociological uh, concept. Uh, so you have class only when you have, uh, you know, a collective of people acting as a class. So it is not sufficient to speak about uh, workforce in order to speak about class. Um, so it, uh, defining what the class is is not is actually one of the most difficult things, <laughs> uh, and it's quite complicated to do. Um, I would say, uh, in general terms, I mean, at least my own uh, position about what class is. So first of all, I think that. Uh, uh, I take class to be a social and political category. Uh, so in other words, it defines not just the workforce, um, but, uh, or, you know, the unemployed, uh, or, you know, whatever kind of other social category you want to um, mention, but it defines, uh, uh, um, so, it, 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 you know, the political aspect is integral part of the definition. In other words, uh, I agree with those who think that for Marx, you do have class only when you have uh, class agency. So only when you have struggle, basically. So str class struggle precedes somehow class. So a class forms itself, becomes a class when it, it fights as a class. So through the struggle. So from this viewpoint, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, then what kind of position you occupy uh, within the organization of society, so in, within the relations of production is irrelevant. Of course, you know, like you act as a class because you're also in a, in, in a specific position. So, for example, you're dispossessed. You don't have means of production. You don't have uh, independent money. You have to work for a living. And even when you do not work for a living, you depend somehow on somebody else's wages. Or you depend on the state. So, in other words, you don't have your own independent wealth. So, um, so when we speak of a social-political category, I, I speak about the combination of these two factors. So, what kind of position you occupy? within the relations of production, whether you are dispossessed or not, whether you are a proletarian <laughs> or not, and uh, whether you are, a, uh, uh, you are part of a collective uh, that is acting as a class. So it, that has, for example, class institutions, like unions, parties, uh, uh, councils, and so on, and that is in, uh, uh, involved in a uh, struggle with another class. Uh, so these two elements need to be taken into account. So if we take then this uh, view of class, then uh, what, uh, you know, what counts as class changes historically. So in other words, why? Because the you know, people do not fight in the same way. Uh, processes of politicization or how people get political and politically involved 
what kind of demands, what kind of forms of struggle they get involved in changes historically. Um, so, you, uh, you know, in the 19th century, early 20th century, we had this idea of the working class as the industrial working class. But why? Because this was the, um, it was a political agent. So in other words, because this is the, was the way in which uh, the class formed itself politically. Um, and this was made possible by the fact that you had, you know, very large working workplaces uh, uh, where workers would uh, coordinated by the um, labor process itself, and so on and so on. Uh, now, of course, we have uh, a work, you know, a workforce with different characteristics, especially if we take into consideration, uh, um, you know, urban areas in uh, advanced capitalist countries. Uh, so the, you know, the form of work of labor, uh, forms of labor have changed, and so on. Uh, so process of, uh, processes of politicization uh, then uh, have also changed. Uh, they're not the same. So um, uh, I'm saying all of this in order to say that um, we should uh, give up idea, you know, models about what counts as class struggle, uh, because there are no models. <laughs> in other words, uh, there are historical experiences from which we can learn, but we, that we, know we need to be able to appraise also in their historicity. So in other words, we can learn from them, but they cannot be repeated. Uh, uh, and we need to be able to, to look at processes today, you know, like current struggles, for example, and see whether they are manifesting a class element uh, and whether there is a process of class formation uh, in, uh, in this movement. So, for example, Black Lives Matter, from this viewpoint, for me, it was a class struggle, a form of class struggle, a specific form. Uh, but uh, um, uh, I, I really... Uh, would like to go beyond this idea of you know, the parallel movement. So you have the anti-racist movements, the feminist movement, then they ha you have the class struggle. And what is class workplace organizing? I think this is too reduc uh, reductionist. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Because like, all right, we've had a lot of conversations about this in DSA, especially as I've gotten more involved with the Emerge Caucus. And I sort of dispute the idea, like, because, you know, there are people who say, oh, you need to be class first. You're not class first if you're thinking too much about feminism, anti-racism, et cetera, et cetera. And I dispute the idea that I am not thinking in a class first way. I just have a much more expansive view of what class means. Yeah. And it can't be separated from these other axes of oppression. Yeah, exactly. And, and by the way, I do think that... Um, I mean, this is a very old debate. <laughs> I mean, no, nothing is new, really new in this, uh, in this discussion. And somehow, in the, the whole history of socialism, you do have uh, both tendencies, right? So you have uh, this kind of, you know, economic reductionist tendency uh, that has characterized uh, especially social, democra social democracy, but also, you know, uh, uh, from some point onward, also, you know, uh, communist parties and so on. And then uh, uh, you have uh, the, uh, the other tendency, which, which is precisely that to think in class, uh, not as an economic category, but uh, precisely as a social political relation, in which uh, what you challenge is not just, you know, uh, of course, you know, challenging the economic struggle is part of class struggle. Uh, you know, the, the fight of, uh, you know, for the wage uh, or working conditions and so on. But classism as much... Uh, has a much broader scope we, because it challenges, you know, class struggle is what challenges uh, uh, social relations as a whole, so a form of society as a whole. And I personally think that actually this view, expanded view of class, is much more in line with Marx. So, you know, like if we take Marx's political writings, for example, 
Uh, and it is also in continuity with uh, what for me are some of the best um, historical uh, uh, examples coming from the socialist tradition. So uh, I would also dispute the idea that you know, if you have this broad understanding of class, you are breaking with the you know, Marxist socialist tradition. And actually, I don't think this is the case at all. I, I actually think that this economic narrow understanding of class uh, is not really Marxist. <laughs> And is this why you chose to title the, the manifesto as, as for the 99% as opposed to for working class women or the working class in general? Yeah, let's talk about the 99% because okay. I hear that it was a little controversial in some circles to use that terminology. Yeah, I mean, so some of, uh, especially activists, because uh, actually this it works very, very much at the mass level, which was the goal of the, of the title and also of the manifesto to speak, you know, beyond also, you know, militant circles. Um, so some of the doubts uh, had to do with the fact that, uh, you know, 99% uh, may evoke, uh, you know, a populist political uh, idea rather than a uh, uh, socialist or working class or class struggle rooted uh, idea. Uh, now, from this viewpoint, I think, first of all, uh, um, uh, there is also some disagreement among uh, uh, me, uh, Nancy and Titi about this. In other words, um, no, Nancy has also recently, uh, Nancy Fraser has recently written uh, about po in, uh, in positive terms about progressive populism um, because she thinks that it is possible to articulate uh, a populist uh, uh, political proposal as a, you know, some kind of transition between, you know, towards a socialist proposal. Um, and she, she doesn't connect populism to the national state or to idea of nationality and so on. I'm, I'm more skeptical that uh, it is possible to use <laughs> populism in this way. Uh, and I'm a bit more concerned. So uh, personally, I do not call my political position uh, populist at all. So, for, so the interpretation I give to Feminists for the 99% as a slogan is not uh, that it is a populist slogan. Uh, the interpretation I personally give is that it is a universalistic slogan. So in other mm. words... Uh, the idea is that, uh, um, you know, we are fighting, for, you know, this is a feminist that, of course, fights for women, for queer, for queer people. Uh, but uh, uh, by doing so, it, it challenges uh, social relations, uh, you know, injustice uh, as a whole. So it fights for a better world for everybody. So in other words, uh, the, 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 the idea is that, uh, of course, you know, this is a feminist manifesto. So we are feminists, we, we, which means we start from... Uh, the articulation of a partial viewpoint, uh, which is the feminist viewpoint, um, and we analyze specifically the, the way in which uh, women and, and queer people are oppressed, uh, but at the same time, uh, precisely because we think that capitalism is the main problem and the main enemy, um, we, think we articulate a political proposal of, uh, for a form of society that would be uh, emancipatory for everybody else. So for the 99%, that means not only for the 99% of women, but for the 99% of, of uh, humanity. So this is, uh, and from this viewpoint, you know, we don't need to uh, have references to populism because uh, this kind of universalism, again, is uh, uh, actually what is proper of the uh, socialist and Marxist tradition. So the idea, you know, we have a war to, to win. Uh, it was not we have a new way, you know, better wages to win. Uh, or, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, it's not bad. Uh, of course, better wages are, uh, you know, I mean, uh, to me, the 99% has always meant th this kind of code for, uh, like, class, but an expanded class. Uh, 
But you know, we've actually got uh, we have Teethy. Yeah, this is actually a line. really good chance yeah. to have Teethy jump on. Do you? Is, do you is she calling? Call? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Why don't you do that? Um, she said that her power went out. Okay. Uh, but she's ready now. Ah, good. We're gonna give her a call. Teethy? Hey, hey, Jamie. Sorry, this is just, um, it's real apocalyptic weather here. Oh, man. Um, yeah. No worries. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if you can hear, but it's um, the thunder and lightning's really loud and oh. everything uh, went blank. So sorry about that. Oh, that's just going <laughs> to add a little, uh, a little drama, drama. <laughs> a little yeah. gravitas, yeah. a little gothic to our Marxism, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. never bad. So, sorry about that. It's just it's okay. really, really uh, coming down. Oh, man, no worries. So, all right, joining us now is Tithi Bhattacharya, professor of history of the Global South at Purdue University, an organizer of the International Women's Strike, and as we have said, a co-author of Feminism for the 99%. Hell yeah. So, Tithi, you've come at an excellent time because I have a question about social reproduction theory. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> all yeah, right. Go for it. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, reading through the manifesto, you lay out a really concise description of the role that social reproduction plays in capitalism. And I think it gets to the heart of one of its most fundamental contradictions, which is basically capitalism's tendency to obliterate the basis for the very system itself, namely human beings and our ability to continue living and working because, right, you can't produce surplus value for your boss if you're not alive. So... Can you summarize the basics of social reproduction theory for our listeners who might not know about it, and uh, particularly with regard to the crisis of care and why it's so important to anti-capitalist struggles? Hey, thank you, Jamie, for uh, having me. It's, uh, it's great to be um, talking to you about this. Um, so uh, social reproduction theory, as I think many of us have um, contrasted it, um, uh, social reproduction, reproductive processes, as many of us have contrasted it against um, sort of capitalist profit making, we've called it people making. So what does that really mean? Um, so the social reproduction of labor power, um, I think, um, we argue, is the presupposition to the very system of profit-making on which capital uh, depends. Um, that means that all wealth in our world, everything around us, is made by workers. Um, and this much is very clear in Marx, in most Marxist writings. Uh, all else is uh, produced by working class um, around the globe. Uh, but then the question becomes, who produces the working class? And this is where um, the processes that create people or create workers become the fundamental uh, presupposition to all wealth of the world. Um, and what is um, people making then um, becomes the most important uh, in a way, uh, work or labor uh, in, in on our planet, because um, that 
is necessary even if there was no um, system of profit making or, you know, under socialism, how human beings produce their life, how human beings produce each other um, are fundamental uh, works of creation that uh, should be the essential core of any social organization. Um, and the problem with capitalism is that those uh, labor processes, that kind of work is actually um, subsumed, is given much less credit than the work of profit-making. In fact, profit-making is um, privileged over people-making in such a way that the essential work of people-making is undermined, undervalued, and sometimes um, even um, replaced. So it is, becomes impossible for the, that kind of work to uh, take place. Now, what is people making then? Well, in a straightforward way, it is a reproduction of human beings by um, bodies marked um, as uh, female. So... Um, People give birth to the next generation. Uh, women give birth to the next generation of uh, workers. And this takes place mostly in units that we uh, call the family, kinship units we call the family. And again, the, then uh, this is why capitalism is so invested in the sort of heteronormative family, because that is the easiest and the most convenient and historically stable uh, uh, kinship organization that capital has relied on to uh, reproduce the next generation of workers, which also, you know, uh, shows us why capitalism is so uh, invested in heteronormative uh, forms of uh, uh, social existence. Um, it, so that's that's one sort of straightforward way of reproduction of the next generation of workers. Well, not straightforward because family is never straightforward, but um, one of the ways. But um, workers are reproduced in various other ways in, in a bounded social context. So, for instance, slavery, immigration are various ways in which capital has reproduced a working force in uh, order to do the work of a, a particular nation. Um, but, you know, when we think about, uh, I mean, when we think about the uh, question of slavery, for instance, um, beautiful human beings uh, capable of recreating beautiful worlds were captured uh, at gunpoint in, in um, the African continent and shipped over uh, to the new world in order to become slaves. Now, how did a beautiful human being who was perhaps a poet or a, uh, you know, a, a future architect become a slave. That is not a, uh, that is not an um, automatic process of becoming a slave. So intense torture, intense labor discipline, a death um, uh, often is required to make a human being into a slave, a poet into a slave, a scientist into a slave. Um, and so that is one of the um, stories, I guess, one of the um, uh, typologies, and, and uh, we have to keep in mind that capital needs to do to human being to being beings to mold them to the discipline that it requires. So a similar process in form 
but obviously not in intensity or um, uh, in, in its vicious outcome, needs to happen in the process of making a human being into a worker for capitalism, right? So, uh, for in, it's again, it's not natural for uh, human beings to want to get up in the morning and uh, and work for someone else at miserable conditions. So, um, so that what are the various then uh, social institutions that exist to make a human being into a worker for capitalism. So we have schools, we have hospitals, we have various, um, uh, um, you know, public services that uh, capitalism allows to exist in order that the working class may reproduce itself uh, for to be ready for the next generation of work. Now, these institutions, I want to emphasize, are within the capitalist network, but they are it, they perform a slightly different role than let's say um, you know like if you think about reproduction you think okay you know nuts and bolts create a car so maybe schools and hospitals are kind of the nuts and bolts that create people yes and no because yes they create they are part of the people making process but the end product is a human being, not a car. So these institutions are also um, subject to the double movement of uh, people making. In other words, workers resist this sort of, um, uh, the, the the pressure on the, the class resists the pressure that capital puts on people making processes and push back. So that's why uh, schools and hospitals, while they are subject to intense capitalist pressure to produce obedient workers, do not naturally or um, uh, or easily produce obedient workers. So teachers fight back. They do not want their students to be cogs in the system. Nurses fight back. They do not want their um, patients to be treated as if they were uh, inanimate objects. So they, so these kind of institutions that, and they also, it's also important to remember these institutions um, uh, often take uh, the, the share of capital's profit. So so um, capitalism is always eager to cut funding to these institutions. So these institutions and these processes then play a necessary but contradictory role to the processes of profit-making in the sense that um, uh, profit-making processes are very clear. They enhance uh, the accumulation process. They enhance capital's power over the social world. These institutions are within capitalists' bounds, but they play this necessary but contradictory role because they are institutions of people-making. So on the one hand, they do produce a future generation of workers, but also they are arenas of struggle and fight back just, and, you know, I don't mean to suggest that uh, the workplace is not an arena of fight back. Of course it is. And it's it's a very important arena of fight back. But these institutions in their very form uh, play, the, play the double role of being both creators of uh, people for capital, but also arenas where people snatch back their life making from the processes of capital. So that's kind of uh, very <laughs> briefly is social reproduction theory about how people-making and profit-making correlate to each other within the system. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, girl, uh, you're singing my song. Hey, this is Andy here, by the way. I'm the producer, but I also asked some questions. Uh, hey, I, I was really, I was really impressed by how the manifesto talks about uh, social reproduction in, in a pretty clear way. Because if you, yeah. if you want to look it up, you might find yourself uh, really in the midst of some deep uh, Marxist theory uh, and and, uh, and you know a, a lot of debates. Um, but from the very beginning of the manifesto, from the first thesis, which is a new feminist wave is reinventing the strike. Uh, you you talk about how these questions of social reproduction and how the these kind of organic struggles uh, around the uh, in these institutions that you're talking about, uh, but also water privatization in Ireland, uh, the Dalit sanitation workers in India, are are leading to these movements that are breaking down these um, kind of tired debates between identity politics and class politics and uh, the workplace and and private life. Um, so how do you see those playing out within the, um, the feminist movements of the last couple of years, like the, the large scale, uh, explicitly feminist movements, um, uh, in, in regards to anti-capitalist struggle, uh, and, and also in, in terms of the, the gender binary and, and the nuclear family? Okay, so uh, this is a very important question because I think what the manifesto tries to do is express um, the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the impulse of the new feminist wave. So I think, and that's why it's so much about, um, in, a, in a sense, about struggle and uh, learning from uh, the, the, uh, the unfolding of, of these uh, struggles. So, um, how how um, how are these? Um, so, first of all, let's let's see where struggle has erupted in recent times. And you know, um, and we're talking uh, of times before, let's say, uh, Trump's um, election, right? So, not not necessarily the last four years, but sort of the decades decades of. Um, um, neoliberalism, right? So one of the things that have happened, what neoliberalism tried to do was break the power of working class in the workplace, right? So um, some of the major um, sort of triumphs through which which marked the birth of neoliberalism in our uh, world was through the breaking of strikes in some major uh, working class centers of the world. So the big textile strike in India, the miners' strike in um, uh, in England, the uh, air traffic controllers' strike in the U.S., um, you know, similar strikes in uh, Brazil. These were some of the key highlights um, of strike breaking uh, through which um, neoliberalism uh, was born. And so um, through its period of growth and development, what it has tried to do is um, both uh, break traditional working class organizations such as unions, but also introduce um, unbelievably draconian labor laws in the workplace, which has meant that it has become in most places of the globe, it is impossible to organize a union once, you know, the, the 1960s, 70s unions were broken because these uh, laws had have come into place. So, um, so this was, and then um, this was one sort of prong of the attack. The other prong of the attack was to um, absolutely um, 
reduce the uh, share of the welfare state or any welfare system uh, upon um, ca uh, capitalist profit. So in other words, break up the welfare straits state, which means that uh, public hospitals, public schools, uh, public food distribution system, for uh, which it was very, very important, uh, say, in the uh, country of my birth, India, um, um, and that all those sort of um, provisioning through which uh, the poor and the working class got social um, uh, provisioning were broken up by uh, neoliberalism. In the global south, uh, it was done through the EGs of the World Bank and the uh, IMF. In the global north, it was done more directly. Um, so those are, are the two sort of uh, prongs of attack. One, to submit social reproduction to the rule of capital, and two, to break up labor unions, right? Now, in this kind of a situation, which carried on for 40 years, you have to understand, a whole generation of workers came to um, adulthood not knowing anything about uh, uh, organized uh, labor, right? So union halls were disbanded, you know, um, my generation um, in India, it, you know, uh, we we knew some union songs growing up, but my sister's generation, which came uh, a mere eight years later, grew up without any of those uh, sort of traditions, right? So, um, and that's that's true. If you grew up in the 80s in the United States or anywhere in the West, you would grow up, uh, except the Scandinavian countries, you would grow up without sort of union hall songs and uh, labor picnics and and so on. So that kind of avenue of fight back was not just erased in practice, it was also began to be erased in social memory. So to make it even more impossible to imagine that sort of a fight back in the workplace, right? Um, meanwhile, um, housing was getting um, out of um, the reach of ordinary people, uh, schools, hospitals, uh, water systems, and so on, were getting out of reach. So uh, from the, um, uh, and, and getting more expensive, etc. Now, these are, um, these sort of life-making um, institutions, water, health, food, um, first of all, uh, affect families more directly than a wage cut because it's a much more direct relationship to uh, to the processes of life making. Um, so, so that's one. And two, in various places, because of the um, uh, nature of um, division of labor under capitalism, these are essentially often uh, the responsibility of women to procure the, the food, uh, water, etc. So what it began to happen from um, uh, the uh, sort of late 80s is essentially um, fight back began to erupt in the arena of social reproduction. So it was women leading fights against water privatization, for instance, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, for uh, women uh, leading fights against, um, you know, sort of uh, privatizations of forests uh, in um, 
uh, not for uh, privatization, but actually deforestation in various parts of Himachal Pradesh in, in India, for instance, because these were common lands from which women procured firewood uh, to heat their houses, and these forests were being uh, taken over, uh, the land was being taken over by corporations and deforested. Um, uh, the, the struggle began to be led by uh, women in all these various uh, situations. Similarly, uh, in the West, you know, housing struggles er erupted um, um, in, in neighborhoods, um, um, school closure struggles uh, erupted in neighborhoods. And again, in the West, particularly in America and uh, Britain, and these struggles uh, happened in areas uh, mostly uh, concentrated uh, with uh, where uh, people of color lived because those schools would be closed first or those neighborhoods would be gentrified first. So these struggles that erupted were often led not just by women, but in the West um, uh, often by women of color. So there is actually a very material reason why we could predict perhaps, which, you know, if, if um, uh, social reproduction uh, um, feminists were paying attention, we could actually predict that actually the next level of struggle was going to be in the arena of social reproduction. It just was because workplaces were not organized enough because uh, the, 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 the organizations have been denuded for decades. They were not organized enough to lead the struggle against austerity. The struggle against austerity was going to take place in the arena of social reproduction. Um, we could have, uh, this, this was becoming very clear and that's when, you know, I think Marxist feminists started writing about these struggles in sort of more concentrated ways and trying to theorize and cohere um, uh, why um, exactly these struggles uh, were taking place. And I think um, I would like to argue that actually it is these struggles led by women in areas of social reproduction that is actually responsible now for igniting workplace struggles. Uh, for instance, with the, that case is very clear in places like Latin America and the United States. So it is in Latin America, it is feminist struggles that that are now empowering labor movements and labor unions to become more confident to take on uh, reactionary regimes and, and their austerity programs. Similarly, in the United States, it is the uh, brilliant and valiant strikes by uh, women in social reproduction sectors such as teaching and nursing. Okay, uh, teachers, uh, and you know, I've written about this, is that 80% to 85% of the United States uh, teaching population in K through 12 are women. So, and, you know, public schools um, have been the sort of brunt, borne the brunt of austerity for decades of neoliberalism. And so it is the teacher strike that have um, the wave of street teacher strike that have actually set off uh, sort of labor regeneration in the United States. Now, you can say this is the return of workplace struggle uh, in the United States, and it is. But we also have to remember that it is not just any workplace struggle, right? It is struggles in the social reproduction arena led by women that is sparking off a new one hopes, a new uh, decade of one hopes uh, labor uh, upsurge, which we hope will have even 
more radical outcomes than the 60s and 70s because we cannot lower our horizons in this moment because of the climate crisis to just winning particular um, reforms under a welfare state. We have to go much further in order to actually stop fossil fuels and fossil capital. Oh, so for sure. So you mentioned uh, Scandinavia a couple of times just now. You mentioned the welfare state and sort of the old class compromise that broke down in the age of neoliberalism. So there are people who think right now that what we need is a return to that golden age of capitalism where when social reproduction was much more heavily subsidized by capital and the state in a kind of class compromise, um, they acknowledged some of the exclusionary elements of the New Deal with respect to women and people of color. But they think there's a way to make this Green New Deal that's more fair to everyone involved and also has the power to reverse climate change. So why do you think that's not going to be sufficient to solve this multi-pronged crisis that's facing us today? Is this for me or Chinsia? It's for either, either one of oh, you. OK. Chinsia, do you want to go first? I, I've okay. talked endlessly and then I can c get back. Uh, OK. Um, so the, um, first of all, um, let's be clear. That, I mean, uh, uh, we certainly are not against reforms or, you know, against improving, uh, you know, provisional demands or uh, um, uh, that you know can improve people's lives and and especially that can uh, act as uh, somehow an organizational uh, tool um, in order to create more organization to expand the movement the struggle and so on um, uh, so what i'm going to say about the new deal is not uh, a rejection of you know the idea that uh, we have to campaign for the you know demands like uh, Medicare for all or uh, other kinds of demands. Of course, we have to. Yeah, we are uh, very much against Medicare for all here at the Antifada. <laughs> we love dying early of preventable <laughs> yeah, causes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be pure revolutionaries, mm -hmm. especially. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, first of all, let's be clear. I mean, the New Deal clearly was uh, not only a class compromise; it was uh, uh, also uh, the way in which uh, it was the compromise that somehow saved. Uh, U.S. capitalism. So, in other words, the, the goal was to actually um, preserve the uh, social structure in place. Um, so, um, from this viewpoint, then, uh, you know, I would be a, a, a bit uh, cautious about uh, referring to the New Deal as the horizon of uh, our, uh, our politics. Uh, that said, I mean, there are uh, two uh, main problems. One is that, uh, I mean, in the manifesto, we discuss about the fact that uh, a number of uh, uh, crises, and this includes also the ecological crisis, uh, are inscribed in the way in which capitalism works. So in other words, uh, they cannot be fixed uh, cosmetically. So in other words, they cannot be fixed with, you know, partial reforms and so on, because they are consequences uh, of the, the very logic of functioning of capitalism. Capitalism is prone to financial and economic crisis. Uh, the drive to endless accumulation uh, necessarily produces uh, uh, ecological crisis. As Titi was explaining, uh, uh, there is a necessary pressure on social reproduction that, you know, like you can, uh, of course, you can have moments uh, in which, uh, bec especially because you have powerful struggles, so you manage to actually get more in terms of social reproduction. So you, you, you manage to get, you know, universal free health care, um, free child care, and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, these are not um, 
somehow the, the regular way of functioning of capitalism, the pressure, you know, the, 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 the regular pressure coming from, uh, cap from the very logical capitalism, actually that to, of squeezing, uh, towards squeezing as much as possible uh, social reproduction and so on. Um, so this is a, a first problem. So in other words, uh, there is no, mat you know, no way in which uh, um, uh, we can, uh, uh, you know, um, prevent this kind of uh, uh, crisis uh, just by um, partial reforms of the way in which capitalism works. So why? Because there, are, there is something that is fundamental to the logic of capitalism. Uh, a second issue has to do with, uh, um, in terms of, especially in terms of the ecological uh, sphere, but not only. Um, I mean, uh, uh, the, the idea of a Green New Deal is a good idea, in the sense that, of course, you know, like you need to have a, a political proposal, and especially if you are involved in an electoral campaign, a political proposal uh, that, uh, uh, that indicates uh, possible ways in which uh, the ecological crisis is addressed. However, we, we need to also be clear about uh, what the limits of this uh, framework are. So first of all, there is no way in which the ecological crisis can be fixed on a national level. Uh, this is already, you know, like, so uh, the Green New Deal is not going to fix the ecological crisis. Of course, uh, I mean, if we really managed to implement it, it would improve the situation, this for sure. Uh, and this materially means also, you know, uh, fewer thousands of people dying of climate change and so on. So it's not an irrelevant matter, but we need to be uh, conscious uh, about uh, uh, what the limits, uh, the, the, the structural limits are. Um, just to give an example, um, you know, reconverting the whole energy system to, uh, uh, you know, away from uh, uh, carbon fuel and so on. Um, so towards, for example, electricity, you know, a much more massive use of electricity and so on. This is perfectly fine, you know, electric cars, yes. Um, but uh, uh, where is the lithium uh, necessary for pr the production of batteries uh, extracted from? Um, you know, 40, more than 40% is extracted from Chile. In what conditions it is extracted? What kind of, uh, uh, of uh, climate problems this extraction is, uh, is, is causing? What kind of pollution, environmental uh, problems it's causing and so on? So in other words, the supply chains, uh, about, you know, of, for everything we produce, the supply chains are transnational supply chains. Uh, uh, you know, like you have raw materials extracted in Africa or Latin America, processed uh, in uh, uh, South Asia, uh, and then refine further and uh, included in the production of, you know, uh, high tech in the uh, United States or Germany and so on. Um, so, uh, and these supply chains have to do with the climate, of course, with the, you know, uh, with, with the, uh, with climate crisis. Um, so how do you address this, uh, this issue? You cannot address it just on, on the national level. You need to have a transnational politics in order to, to be able to do, to do this. So already this, I think, shows uh, how, uh, you know, we need to, you know, be honest about um, what the, the political proposals we support uh, are about, what, are, what, what they can achieve and what they can actually not achieve uh, because of structural issues and because of the way in which the global capitalist market works. Right. Okay, great. So um, I want to follow up from that and, and talk about, first of all, two things. One is uh, the New Deal. Okay, so... Um, the New Deal, just to remind everyone, um, 
systematically and insistently excluded farm workers and domestic workers from the Social Security and National Labor Relations Acts, right, in, in 1935. And this was commonly... It, understood to be a race-neutral policy by the Roosevelt uh, administration, dominated by the uh, Southern Democrats, um, race-neutral in the sense that they knew that they were going to in exclude black people from this because most uh, uh, of the farm workers and domestic workers in 1935 were black. So this was a clear um, sort of call to uh, um, integrate, uh, I want to say, and historians have argued, racism into the fabric of the New Deal. So that's sort of something that we have to uh, begin with when we talk about the New Deal. In other words, um, uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, when attacked by uh, the, the rampant right said, why the hell are you attacking me? I'm here to save capitalism, not ruin it. And he was absolutely right. He stabilized capitalism, saved it, and saved capitalism in some of its most marked unequal uh, inflections, which is uh, race, right? So, uh, and of course, by uh, default, gender as well, given uh, the gender of domestic workers. So that's the sort of uh, kind of history of uh, a new deal. And to to their credit, the, um, the, uh, the new uh, Green New Deal, as proposed by um, Ocasio-Cortez, actually uh, talks about this. So this is not an assumption or a silent assumption. It is actually in the document that she's proposing that this was a, a racist uh, uh, element to the New Deal, and we need to be um, attentive to that. So that's uh, that's wonderful that it's there. But um, I want to. Uh, so that's the first thing I want to uh, sort of remind ourselves of. The second thing that I want to say is, what is the origin of the climate crisis? Uh, what, what is the root cause, not origin, let's say the root cause of climate crisis? The root cause of climate crisis is um, siphoning carbon from the atmosphere um, into uh, our uh, world, right? So uh, carbon is getting into our biosphere from the lithosphere, right? And so that's happening because of the way uh, 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 fossil fuels are burned in this uh, in this world. That's what's causing it. So every measure, right, of trying to stop that uh, or, or trying to ameliorate the effects of that is good. So planting trees is good. Recycling is good. All of these things are good, but it doesn't stop climate change unless you stop that root cause. Uh, so, so we're trying to do this like uh, you know, uh, like we're in a boat with a big hole and we've got beautiful buckets. Some of these buckets are, you know, uh, got, uh, you know, radical uh, credentials <laughs> and the buckets are very effective in taking the water that's coming up and pushing it back. So the boat is kind of stable for a little while and we're all working our buckets. But unless we mend that hole, unless we repair that hole, the, the water is never going to stop uh, coming into the boat. So we're merely sort of using buckets when we use these ameliorative measures. And why is fossil fuel 
uh, impossible to, why is that hole impossible to mend under capitalism? Because capitalism as a system, right, it depends on competition, not just competition between workers, but actually competition between capitalists. Because it is dependent on competition, it constantly requires faster and faster growth. And only fossil fuels can um, deliver that kind of fast growth. And that is why capitalism as a system is wedded to fossil fuels. And unless that that cycle is broken, and that cycle can only be broken by an anti-capitalist movement. So uh, in recent writings, I've argued that it is not enough to call for a Green New Deal. We have to call for a radical new Green deal, uh, Green New Deal, because uh, just a Green New Deal, as Chinsia points out, within a national context is not going to uh, fix that hole and, uh, in, in our boat. That makes so much sense. I just want to play that answer back for people next time I am arguing with someone about this exact same topic because it can it can get a little frustrating. So I have two more questions that I want to get to. Um, I feel like maybe one of you should answer one and one should answer the other. Does that make sense? Yep. Sure. All right, great. So um, you have a section on uh, sexual and gender liberation, which I think is really important um, because... Okay, so on the one hand, uh, gender norms and the nuclear family are bourgeois institutions. We know this. They've been propped up and molded by capitalism. Um, On the other, it seems like the left wing of neoliberalism at this current phase is very willing and able to recuperate strides made in sexual and gender liberation. So how does neoliberal capitalism actually work against true LGBT liberation and sexual freedom? Because I know I've heard some more, I don't know, socially conservative leftists saying that this is like purely a creature of neoliberalism and use it as some excuse to be uh, more traditionalist about the family and whatnot. First of all, uh, capitalism is not interested in sexual uh, liberation or emancipation. Okay, it is interested in uh, commodity production and it is interested in uh, Uh, maintaining that system of commodity production. So in order to do that, um, it it can make some concessions. So every single step that uh, that we have achieved for sexual liberation under capitalism has been achieved because of social movements. Okay, so that's the sort of bottom line that we have to start with. Um, uh, And we are not talking about social movements where, uh, you know, nice, happy gay people march with cops in, uh, you know, MasterCard stamped parades. We are talking about riots. We are talking about people uh, pushed to the uh, edge of their uh, limits uh, where their existence have been mocked and vilified and they have been imprisoned and branded and lynched, uh, fighting back collectively in order uh, to live a life of dignity and to be able to live and love their chosen person or persons with dignity. Okay, so it's riots 
to which we have to be grateful for any liberation that we have in this arena. So that's right. the first thing that I want to say. Uh, the second thing is uh, what th this brings us to the question of uh, the social reproduction of the bourgeois family. Okay, and one of the things that neoliberals uh, can say is, oh, the bourgeois family is wonderful, and it's actually no longer heteronormative. It, you know, look at all the happy gay couples and uh, their lovely washing machines. So, uh, which, you know, have uh, uh, prompted many queer scholars to talk about homonormative uh, families, which uh, is, is makes entire sense. But let's keep in mind a couple of things. One is, uh, as I said before, the heteronormative family is capitalism's default setting, okay? It's its go-to. It's the easiest historically most resilient uh, form that it has depended on to reproduce the working class. So no matter what concessions capitalism allows in whatever you know social setting to uh, queer families or queer uh, reproductive processes, the heteronormative family remains the horizon of expectation for capital. And that's why it remains the horizon of expectation in, uh, in, in our uh, social world and, ex uh, and exchanges. Um, and so it, it is not at all just because gay people uh, uh, now, you know, uh, live in houses or are sort of uh, are having children, etc., that there is no uh, pressure upon them or others to be uh, a heteronormative couple. There's always that pressure, and there's and homophobia still exists in raging forms, not just in uh, you know as as racists argue in non-Western countries, but in the very heart of the West. Um, so that that said, what is the role of the family? The family both uh, is plays this contradictory role, and we have to be very clear on that, okay? Because sometimes our critique of the family uh, can be too one-sided. So one of the things is that it is the heart of a heartless world, just like uh, uh, Marx talks about religion, okay? So on the one hand, it is one of the most um, a terrible institutions under capitalism that produces abuse and homophobia and queer phobia uh, in this world. It is also a refuge from the world of profit. Okay, so uh, in a lot of ways, the family is a place where uh, working class uh, people go to in order to survive the scars of the working life. Okay, so the family plays this double role, which makes us long to reproduce the family, and yet within the family, we starve because of the various uh, uh, pressures and, and, and abuses, right? So this is the constant refrain uh, uh, the, of uh, pressure and liberation and comfort that uh, the working class world uh, sort of um, uh, um, oscillates in under under capital okay so on the one hand there's this constant pressure to reproduce the bourgeois family on the other the family provides for social provisioning for social care in many situations and we find it indispensable especially in an atomized individual world uh, where it's difficult to relate to each other so this is why I think we have to uh, 
we have to understand that when we call for the abolition of family, we are not calling for the abolition of the kind of comfort and care the family provides. In fact, we're calling for more uh, uh, care and comfort that the family provides, but this time for everyone for both queer and straight, for people in genetic as well as non-genetic familial uh, organizing and situations, okay? So, Chenzia, yeah. um, to close things out and return to a little bit of practical action that we can be thinking about right now in the world, um, the one of the biggest feminist phenomenons of the past couple of years is, of course, the Me Too movement, or I don't know if it's a movement. I'll just shorthand it by calling it that. And, you know, I, I've heard some some good faith critiques and some less good faith critiques about it um, as coming from sort of an essentially liberal place. But, you know, as a socialist feminist, I really can't ignore the fact that this many people, this many non-male people in particular, are talking about sexual violence and sexual assault in a very real way, some of them for the first time ever. So, you know, despite the uh, more neoliberal elements to it, like I have, do you think that there is something valuable that the left can recuperate and carry forward in the sort of popular energy of the Me Too phenomenon? Okay, so in, so first of all, l let me say that uh, I think it is a misreading of the Me Too movement to think that this was a neoliberal or liberal movement. Or, you know, of course, this was a social media phenomenon, so it was not, you know, uh, but it, that uh, produced uh, also some uh, significant uh, uh, struggles. And I will mention one for, um, for all, which is uh, the Google strike, uh, wildcat <coughs> strike, um, in response to allegations of sexual uh, harassment by uh, uh, the management of the, of the company. In New York, when, uh, when uh, uh, Google workers went, uh, uh, you know, walked out, uh, they were also holding a banner saying, uh, labor rights are women's rights. Um, this is just to give an example. Uh, the, what, what the Me Too was about, you know, uh, besides the fact, of course, it was popularized, especially by, you know, uh, Hollywood stars and so on, but popular doesn't mean necessarily liberal. What the Me Too movement uh, um, uh, basically made apparent is uh, uh, the way in which uh, workplaces are places of uh, sexual harassment, uh, sex, uh, sexual assault, uh, discrimination and so on. Uh, this was extremely important because it opened the possibility for a conversation about the, the way in which hierarchies within the workplace and the way in which uh, uh, labor is organized in the workplace. So the, the absence of unions, the absence of uh, labor, clear labor rights, uh, the absence of uh, workplace democracy and so on fuel uh, the, 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 you know, create the, 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 the fertile soil for sexual harassment and sexual, uh, and sexual abuse. Uh, not only in terms of, uh, um, you know, individual interpersonal behavior, but also, in in also as a form of discipline in labor, uh, discipline in, uh, the, you know, the female uh, uh, workforce. Uh, so I think we should give rather this kind of reading of the Me Too uh, phenomenon rather than, you know, dismissing it as uh, liberal, uh, uh, a liberal phenomenon and so on. Um, so uh, the, the question uh, about how to recuperate that energy is a good question in the sense that sometimes uh, there is some uh, 
um, tendency, you know, in the in in the left to think, you know, to think that uh, precisely, you know, what what are some, uh, you know, uh, mass reach or uh, uh, what is what becomes popular uh, on a mass level, then it's you know it's not radical enough. <laughs> uh, I think we need to drop this kind of attitude, which means that uh, of course uh, the, the you know we do have the the the, the fundamental question of understanding why. Uh, a mass move, feminist movement has not taken place in the United States. And I do think that what I said earlier about the Women's March explains uh, some of the, of the reasons uh, why we didn't have uh, uh, a mass social movement. And we need to understand how to manage to create a feminist mass movement uh, that is going to involve not just you know, the most radical sectors of, uh, of uh, women and queer people, but you know, uh, in general, uh, um, the you know, the large mass of uh, women and queer people. Uh, from this viewpoint, I think that what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, the idea of a mass strike uh, around the issue of abortion is actually uh, an excellent example of uh, an idea uh, around which we can uh, work, uh, creating, uh, you know, alliances, creating networks of activist uh, labor unions, uh, uh, organizations and so on uh, around a very uh, clear demand which is you know like the opposition to the uh, attempts of making abortion illegal um, and uh, uh, and also the connection between the demand for free um, uh, illegal abortion to the demand with you know for the universal free health care uh, so we have you know the a clear um, uh, you know set of demands uh, about reproductive justice, around which it is, in my view, possible to create a mass movement, uh, a mass movement that maintains its radicality, uh, in, you know, the radical, but at the same time is uh, managing to speak uh, a language and to, and to appeal a la to a you know, large mass of, uh, of people. And, uh, uh, and from this viewpoint, I really sincerely hope that the uh, DSA convention uh, in August is going to uh, uh, vote on the resolution for the mass strike and to approve it. Because I think this, this is a, gr a, a good example in which, um, you know, for a, a kind of a campaign uh, around which we can uh, connect feminist struggle with labor struggle. And this is uh, the last thing I wanted to say is that, uh, you know, what T.D. was saying earlier is very important, you know, about the fact that, uh, you know, if you look, if you look at, the, at the strike wave in the United States, it's mostly women workers, and this is not irrelevant. And so I think that one of, uh, also around, and this is why I think that the idea of a mass strike in defense of, you know, reproductive justice is a, uh, is a great idea, is that, uh, you know, in order to create, uh, in order to create the conditions for a feminist mass movement in the United States, I think we need to, precisely uh, uh, managed to have uh, you know, a magical uh, encounter between these women workers, um, you know, women workers fighting in the workplaces, uh, women uh, union organizers and so on, and uh, the feminists who have uh, mobilized around issues of reproductive justice, uh, gender violence and so on. So we need to manage to somehow connect the dots, uh, connect the, uh, these uh, struggles because uh, uh, you know, for, for the kind of analysis we put forward, you know, social reproduction and uh, the, its crisis and so on, these are connected uh, struggles. Uh, the issue is that we need to make it explicitly connected. And I think the idea of a mass strike in defense of reproductive justice is precisely the way in which we can, uh, uh, you know, manage to do this work. Hell yeah. If only someone would connect those dots in a manifesto, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, is there any, the book is once again, 
Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto out now on Verso Books. Is there anything else you guys would like to plug? And hopefully... I think think promote more a politics of solidarity. I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the legacies of um, neoliberalism has been uh, that solidarity politics have been attacked. I think we... uh, we need to talk more about solidarity, not necessarily with causes that are popular, but with causes um, that of all sorts of oppression and exploitation. So solidarity should be, you know, as the feminist movement says, our weapon. Dead ass. So thank you again okay. so much to both of you for joining us Thanks here for today. Having us. And oh, thank you. you know what? I'm going to do a plug too. Um, if you like what you hear and want us to keep on doing more of it, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash the Antifada and support the work that we do, get access to some cool bonus content, our Discord community that's full of awesome people. Yeah, that's what's up. So thank you again, guys. Um, thank you. Maybe next time we can all be together during the thunderstorm and like huddle under a blanket <laughs> or something. Exactly. Exactly. Drink some tea. Yeah. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Bye bye. Good to okay. speak to Thanks you. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.